uh, good this morning. Thank you guys for, uh, for being here this morning. This morning, uh, we're going to continue in our series through the book of Acts. So for the last several weeks and for the better part of 2018, uh, we're going to be looking at the book of Acts. And specifically right now, um, we are looking at uh, chapter 3 and a couple of chapters after that. Um, if you remember in Acts 1-8, Jesus said uh, to the people gathered around him before his ascension, uh, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and um, Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so we're looking at the, the time in the book of Acts where the followers of Christ are becoming his witnesses. And right now, specifically, they're still in uh, Jerusalem as we move through the book. We're calling this series Witnesses, and we're seeing how uh, Jesus' followers became witnesses of Jesus' lordship, of uh, Jesus' saving work, how they were witnesses of the resurrection uh, right there in Jerusalem where God still had them. Um, So I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll move on talking about some verses in Acts chapter 4. But let's pray. God, thank you for the opportunity we have to be here this morning. God, thank you that uh, just in the few moments we've been together already. We've been able to uh, hopefully worship by singing, by hearing your word proclaimed, by praying together. Um, God, by reflecting on who you are and what it is you've done for us and how great you are. And and Holy Father, now as we move to look at uh, just a few verses from Acts chapter 4, I pray that you would continue to be at work in our hearts and minds, that you would continue to draw us to yourself, that you would... um, Speak to us the very words that you would have us hear. Holy Father, I'm fully aware of the fact that my words are of little importance. But God, your words are of utmost importance. And so God, I pray that we would hear from you. I pray that we would hear your words. I pray that you would use me simply as an instrument of your grace and mercy. Instrument of the gospel that Christ would be lifted high. And that we would be drawn to you because of Jesus and Jesus alone. God, we ask all this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Acts chapter 4, verses 32 through 37. Uh, That's what we're going to be talking about this morning, if you want to flip there in your Bibles. Um, Or it'll be up here on the screen. Last week, John Farmer was here, um, one of our friends from First Press. And uh, John talked through the first part of Acts chapter 4. And so we're picking up right at the end of Acts chapter 4, looking specifically, like I said, at Acts 4, 32 through 37. And uh, this is what this passage says. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. And thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So we have here in this short few verses as we have this picture of what's happening with the disciples in Jerusalem, how um, they have created this, uh, or they have the context of this community that's caring 
for one another. And so we have a few passages talking about how they're caring for one another, how they're united around a singular purpose, united around Christ, how they're taking care of one another. And then at the end of the passage, we have this positive example of Barnabas, who does what the passage is talking about. Next week, at the beginning of Acts chapter 5, in the first 11 verses, there's the story of Ananias and Sapphira. It's not quite as positive as these verses are. Um, And we'll have another guest with us next week, Dante Stewart, who will talk about that passage. Um, But that's what's happening here. And I was thinking through this passage over the last week. Something became very obvious to me early on about this passage. It just kind of gripped me and, uh, and never let go. Verse 32 speaks very specifically about those who believe, right? It says, now the full number of those who believe were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common, right? So if we ask ourselves, verse 32 talks about those who believed. What did they believe? Well, if we move back further, right, back a little bit in the book of Acts, we know what they believed. They believed the gospel. They believed that God had acted on their behalf. They believed that the resurrection occurred, and they spent time with Jesus, and their life has been changed because God had acted through the death and resurrection of his son, Jesus, to reconcile them to himself so that they might be witnesses for God so that others might be reconciled to God as well. And that's the key to what's happening in, ver- in chapter 4, right? The key to what's happening is that they believe. they believing in Jesus as Savior and Lord. They're trusting him for all that they need, so much so that they're willing to sacrifice for others. They're being satisfied with what God has given them, and that's the root of what's happening here. And this is the thing that gripped me this week that I could not let go of. And you're going to hear it over and over this morning. Um, But it seems to me that right away what we see in this passage, that those who belong to Christ, those who believe the gospel, those that have been reconciled to God are led to hold tight to people and to loosen their grip on things. We all know about the horrific and tragic shooting that took place at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida this past week. It was um, an utterly uh, devastating news to hear. I have two young girls that are in public schools in the Augusta area, and so immediately my heart was gripped. What if that happens here? What are these parents possibly dealing with? so much violence, so much death, and and I was fearful for my girls, and at the same time, I felt such, uh, I don't know, just such pain for these people who were experiencing the worst day of their lives, right? I mean, utter despair, and I remember praying that God would surround these families. I remember praying that God would allow them to experience his presence That God would surround them with the presence of believers there uh, around Parkland, Florida, so that the hurting and grieving could be loved by Jesus very really through his church. I just remember being overwhelmed with that. And then I started looking at social media, and I started looking at news reports. And suddenly, out of the blue, it wasn't out of the blue, but suddenly this tragedy became framed not around what had happened, not around the grieving and the hurting. The tragedy became framed around either the right to own guns or the, uh, or the necessity to restrict gun, gun, gun ownership. 
And the larger national conversation turned to something else entirely. And I understand why that happened. Uh, hear me, right? I understand why that occurred. I understand why the conversation turned. I, I get it. And that's certainly a conversation that needs to be had, and the gospel has something to say about it, like it does all things. But as I was reflecting on this passage, and I was reflecting on the events that took place in Florida, and the tragedy and the horror that occurred there, my heart hurt all over again. Because the fact that this kind of thing can happen to begin with means that our world is broken and devastated and in need of a savior. The fact that this conversation has to exist is evidence that our world is messed up. And the fact that this happens should break our hearts for people. Our hearts should break for those who need, who feel the need to enact such violence. Our hearts should break for those who are experiencing that utter despair and are grieving and hurting in those families what they must be going through and their hearts hurt because evil exists right and we're waiting on Christ's ultimate fulfillment of his promise in Isaiah 2 that one day swords will be turned to plowshares and one day spears will be turned to pruning hooks but right now the church because we believe the gospel, because we have been changed by what Christ has done for us, we should be led to hold people tight and to loosen our grip on things. That's simply a reality of the gospel. And for these people in Florida, we're so devastated by the events of this last week. We, as Christians, have a responsibility to be praying that God would comfort, that God would send comfort to these people. And so let us hold them tightly, not simply because they're hurting, but also because in Acts chapter 2, we learn that Christians are to be people who hold others tightly and relinquish their grip on things. From Acts chapter 4, those of us who believe the gospel, the gospel should lead us to hold tight to people. If you go back and you examine the Gospel of Luke, the same, uh, the same Luke that's writing the book of Acts wrote the Gospel of Luke, you will see that one of his main burdens throughout the book of Luke is for Christians to be free from the love of things and to be firm in their love for people. If your heart is united in love to people, then you will loosen your grip on things. And things will have value only as a means of loving people. Let me say that again. If your heart is united in love to people, then you will loosen your grip on things. And things will have value only as a means of loving people. People. That's what Acts 4 is about. That's what this story is about. It's a snapshot of a community of people whose hearts have been utterly revolutionized by Jesus, and it led them to hold tight to one another and to let go of their stuff. They found themselves freely caring about people and freely selling land and houses and giving the money to those who needed it most because of needs that they had. 
Luke chapter 12, verses 32 through 34, I wrote that Luke references this in his gospel. Luke 12, 32 through 34, it says this, Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. This is exactly what the early church was doing in Acts 4. Storing up treasures for themselves in heaven. It was not because they had to do it in order to earn God's favor. It was not because they had to do it because the church said they had to do it. It was because they believed the gospel, and the gospel changed them so much that they were led to radical generosity. This shows up again and again in the book of Acts. As we spend the better part of this year in the book of Acts over and over and over, you're going to see this thing happen. One of the best pictures of this that, that I think there is is in uh, Acts chapter 20. Uh, Paul uh, has been on a missionary journey. He's on his way back to Jerusalem. And on his journey back to Jerusalem, he gets in touch with the church at Ephesus. And he calls the Ephesian elders to come and meet with him. And he gives them his parting address. If you read Acts 20, you'll see that, that Paul knows this is the last time he's going to see these believers. These believers know that it's the last time they're going to see Paul. And Paul spends several verses telling them essentially two things. He spends the first few verses where he's talking to them about the gospel. He calls it the words of grace. He wants them to remember the gospel. And over and over and over from like verse 25 of Acts 20, uh, over the next few verses, he just constantly talks about the words of grace and the gospel. He wants them to remember the gospel. And then the very last thing he says to them, the very last thing, Acts 20 verse 35, In all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. It's interesting, by the way, those words aren't found in any of the Gospels. Um, Jesus said those words, and somehow Paul heard them through one of the disciples or one of the early apostles there. Um, But we do know Uh, that the principle holds true, and that those words of Jesus, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And so Paul speaks these words to these Ephesian church leaders, and the very last thing he says to them, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Now, is he telling them something different than to remember the gospel? Right, if he spends several verses saying, remember the gospel, and then he spends this verse and says, it's more blessed to give than to receive. Is he telling them two things? I don't really think so. I think he's telling them... Uh, one thing, and it's that the gospel leads us to be generous. The gospel leads us to sacrifice for others. It's not two separate ideas because belief in the gospel naturally leads to this place of giving and sacrificing for others. Love for God and love for others, they go together. You remember Jesus said something about this. You'll love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you're going to love your neighbor as yourself. Earlier this week, uh, I was talking to Amy about this passage, and uh, one of the hardest things for me to do whenever I preach a sermon is to come up with really good illustrations. Uh, it's so, so very difficult 
And uh, last week, John Farmer was here, and he had great illustrations during his sermon. So I was thinking this week, I have to come up with some really good illustrations. Um, so I was talking to Amy uh, about some ideas, and I threw a couple of ideas out about sacrifice and uh, giving up for others. And uh, the idea I told her, she was like, don't do that. That's, that's not good. Um, but she reminded me of something that happened recently uh, in our life. Uh, but let me ask you this question. Who here loves the Cheesecake Factory? Does anybody in the room love the Cheesecake Factory? Okay. Well, I'm going to go out on a limb and say I don't <laughs> like the Cheesecake Factory at all. Um, and that's okay. I don't really like, just me personally, I don't like chain restaurants unless it's Chick-fil-A. And then everybody loves Chick-fil-A, right? Um, but a couple of weeks ago, Amy was running in this race in Atlanta, uh, or was scheduled to run this race in Atlanta called the Hot Chocolate 15K. It's like a 10-mile race where you run, and at the end, you get a bunch of hot chocolate and chocolate and other stuff. I don't really know. Um, but uh, we were getting ready to go. We are going to Atlanta. She's running with a bunch of friends from the neighborhood. Uh, one of those friends from the neighborhood that she works out and runs with had recently had a birthday. And so she said, when we're all in Atlanta for this race, I really just want to go eat at the Cheesecake Factory to celebrate my birthday. And, uh, like, I just, I didn't like it. But, um, but, okay, so the day comes where we have to leave to go to Atlanta. Uh, Amy has to work that morning. Um, she comes home. we got to get the car packed up. Uh, we got to get the kids dropped off, and then we got to hit, hit the road to Atlanta. So we're going to Atlanta. We get inside. I think we're inside 285 in Atlanta, going to downtown. Uh, we might not have been there yet. I don't know if you've ever been passed by, like, a motorcycle gang before, but I, does that make sense to you? Have you ever been driving and, like, 24 motorcycles surround you and just go past? Well, we got surrounded by, like, a Dodge Charger gang. It was the weirdest <laughs> thing. There's like 15 of them, and they go flying by at 150 miles an hour and like driving on the median and whatever. So anyway, it's just a little stressful getting there. We get to the hotel, not sure where to park. We go to get checked in. The reservation's messed up, whatever. It takes a long time. It's about 4 o'clock. We haven't even been to the room yet, and these friends that we're in Atlanta with are already at the Cheesecake Factory because you have to stand in line for an hour and 45 minutes to get a table. And so then we drive all the way across Atlanta through, it's not all the way across, it's like eight miles, but it took 40 minutes to get across Atlanta to get to the Cheesecake Factory. Um, we park in a garage. I don't even know where I am. We've got to get inside Lenox Mall and get to the Cheesecake Factory. And so we walk inside, and I am just not in a good place, right? I am angry at the whole travel experience, the checking into the hotel, and so we're sitting there eating dinner, and I'm trying to act like I care <laughs> that it's our friend's birthday, right? It's her birthday, and she wants to have a good time. And the whole time, I remember fighting in my head with how stupid it is that I'm so angry when she just wants to celebrate her birthday and have a good time. Um, and so I think I finally got to a place where I said, all right, I don't want to be here. I actually hate this whole experience. But it's not about me. It's about our friend who wants to celebrate her birthday here. It took me a long time to get to that point, and today I can laugh about it. But, right, the point is there are implications to this idea that the gospel leads us to hold tight to people and to loosen our grip on things. And one of those implications is that the gospel leads us to willingly sacrifice for others. Now, I'm not sure it's really sacrifice if, if you're like me and you don't really have the right heart attitude. But the gospel leads us to sacrifice 
for others. And when we look at the book of Acts, when we look at the origins of the church, which is what the book of Acts is about, the origins of the gospel going forth and the church uh, spreading the gospel to the ends of the world, what we see is a sacrificial community. The early church, at its core, was a sacrificial community. Listen to what it says in Acts 4 again. Now, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. No one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. The origins of the church, the very beginning, when you go back and look at the church as it began, sacrificial community. Here's another implication of this idea that we should hold tight to people and loosen our grip on things. It's the implication that we really need to prioritize and cultivate unity. Look at verse 32 and 33 again. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. With great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Right. So, so Luke writes here about their unity of heart and soul, their unity of heart and mind. They are believers. They are together. They are seeing and perceiving things in a unified way. They have similar goals and similar aspirations. They identify themselves as the people of God. They recognize that they are witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus. They are united around Christ and united around their mission to be witnesses, the very mission that Jesus gave them so that others might hear of the resurrection and come to know Jesus as well. That's why it talks about with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection. And so great power has come upon their evangelism, uh, their preaching, their being witnesses, right? The resurrection is only a few months in the past. Pentecost is only a few months in the past. But this idea of the resurrection, of, of Jesus dying and coming to life, is central to what they're talking about. And they're united around Christ. And as they're united around Christ, great power comes upon their preaching, and they become witnesses to the resurrection. And that boldness that John and Peter have been praying for in, in, in chapter 4, that boldness is upon God's people as a community, and they're proclaiming God's word. The whole community, the whole church is, is bold in their proclamation, and they're united around Christ, and disciples are being made. If there's anything I've learned in the last 20 or 22 years that I've been involved in ministry on some level, be it as a volunteer or in um, church leadership, if there's anything I've learned, it's that unity of mind, unity of purpose, unity around Christ that doesn't just happen naturally. It's something that has to be cultivated. It's something that has to be pursued. It's not something where you can just throw people in a room and expect that unity to occur. It takes work, and it takes effort. And part of that that we see in Acts chapter 4 is these early church being willing to sacrifice for one another. I don't know if you've ever seen this um, movie. It, at first, it sounds like it's a movie about football. It's the movie, Remember the Titans? 
anybody ever seen that movie? It's one of my favorite movies. I think it's a great movie. Uh, it seems like it's about football, but I don't really think it's about football, right? Football is the context for what's happening in this movie, and it's a true story. Um, I think the movie takes some liberties with what actually happened um, as it relates to games that they won and, and different things like that, and obviously other stuff as well. But it's based on a true story. And the story is this. There's a um, high school in Virginia. It's the late 60s or early 70s. Um, the high school is recently uh, integrated, so there are black students and white students coming together to school for the first time and playing football together for the first time. And so there's great fear and mistrust and hatred um, going on between these students. And the school hires this guy named Herman Boone. It's played by Denzel Washington in the movie to come in and to be the football coach. And it's his job to take these groups of students who are at war with one another and unite them around a singular purpose, a common goal. And so the whole movie is about the ways in which Coach Herman Boone creates the context for these students to work towards and cultivate unity among one another. It takes effort, constant, persistent, repeated effort for this team to be united around a common goal and a common purpose. Now, in the say, for the movie, it's the common purpose of winning. It's the common purpose of coming together to win these football games and to, and to prove everybody wrong that they could not come together and be united. But it took constant effort, constant work to get to this point. Now, I highly recommend it if you've never seen the movie, even if you don't like football. It is a, it's a great movie. This early church, they were in the context for that type of unity to occur. They were together. They were sacrificing for one another. They were dedicating themselves to prayer and to the gospel. They were being witnesses to the resurrection. They were putting themselves and their things on the line for one another, and they were united around a common purpose, and their witness flourished. And as much as that happened, there's another implication I want us to see from this idea that we are to hold tight to people and to loosen our grip on things. Look at verses 36 and 37. It's this brief story that we have about um, Barnabas. This is the Barnabas, by the way, that later on in the New Testament we see on missionary journeys with Paul. Um, so Barnabas went with Paul, did a uh, journeyed, planted churches, was a witness to the resurrection as well. But verses 36 and 37, it says this, Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. What we see Barnabas doing here, I think, is exactly what Luke wrote about in Luke 12, where Luke says to store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. He's relinquishing a thing, property, for the sake of others. He's giving up for someone else, right? And just, just like we need to cultivate unity, I believe we need to cultivate the practice of storing treasures in heaven. Let's think about that for a minute, right? If we talk about storing treasures in heaven, what is a treasure? A treasure is something that we assign value to, I think it's true that not many things have intrinsic value, 
most things have value because we've assigned value to them. We say this thing is important to me. This thing does something for me. This thing uh, holds some value in some way because it does something for me. And for the most part, I think this is true as well, most people live in pursuit of something. Most people live in pursuit of something that they value, right? For some, it might be things. It might be material possessions. It might be wealth. It might be something along those lines. For other people, we might be pursuing the acceptance of others, so much so that we value the approval of others more than anything else. We might be pursuing power or control. We might be pursuing success. We might be pursuing comforts of life we might be pursuing pleasure and fun we might be pursuing things but i think it's probably true that most of us value something and most of us pursue something somehow some way all of us are living for something but according to what jesus said in luke 12 the thing that is your treasure will control your heart where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And once that thing is in that place of treasure, whatever it is, it will control the desires, the thoughts, the emotions, the attitudes of your heart. The way you interpret life will then become about that thing that is your treasure. The thing that will make you happy is moving closer to your treasure. The thing that will make you sad is moving away from your treasure. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be. Once treasure is in possession of your heart, it will set the agenda for your words, your decisions, your actions, your reactions, your responses, and so forth. And so the spiritual dynamic of Luke 12 is this. Everybody lives a treasure-oriented life. Everybody's heart is controlled by some kind of treasure. And that control sets the agenda for the way that person lives. And so what Jesus does is he talks about treasure and he divides them into two categories. He says there's earthly treasures, which by necessity are temporary, fleeting, and passing. And then there are eternal treasures that last forever. And so let me ask you the question, what set of treasures do you live for? Because Barnabas had a thing, but he sold that thing for the sake of others. He sacrificed for others. His actions displayed what controlled his heart. And as a great example for us, he loosened his grip on a thing because he valued people more. I think that's exactly what's going on with Barnabas in this passage. So if we were to bring all this together and wrap all this up for a minute, what I'm saying this morning is that we need to hold tight to people and we need to loosen our grip on things. We need to hold tight to people and we need to loosen our grip on things. There are many implications that come with that statement. If it's true, then there are so many implications that come with that. If it's true that we are to loosen our grip on things and to hold tight to people, then that begins to affect pretty much every area of our life in some way. There are great implications to this. 
believing the gospel, believing the gospel should lead us to the point of loosening our grip on things and holding tight to people. And so how do we take this and how do we apply this to our life in a way that becomes real? So I would ask you some questions in relation to that. Hopefully that we might take the truth of God's word here and that it might become meaningful and active in our lives. Number one, do you believe the gospel? Do you believe the gospel? That's the first question I would ask you. Has your life been affected by the gospel? Do you believe that Christ willingly gave of himself and sacrificed himself for you to make a way for you to be right with God? Is there something that you believe more than the truth of the gospel? Is there something that you value more than the truth of the gospel? What is that thing? Is there something in your life that you value more than Christ? If there is, that thing is an idol. That thing will control your heart. That thing will control your life. That thing will enslave you. And that thing will never bring you satisfaction. But is there something in your life that you value more than Christ? If you value Christ, do you value the mission that Christ has set you on to be his witnesses? Is there something that you treasure more than the people of the community of faith that Christ has placed you in? Do you value your things more than you value God's people? Do you value your things more than you value others? If so, why? What is keeping you from being sacrificial for the sake of your community, for the sake of the advancement of the gospel? Let me ask you this question. What treasures are you not willing to hand over to Christ? Here at Redemption, over the last few years, we've talked a lot about submitting every area of life to the Lordship of Christ, increasingly submitting every area of life to the empowering Lordship of of Christ. Is there some treasure that you hold tightly to that you're not willing to hand over and submit to Christ? If it's true, if it's true that we're to hold tight to people and to loosen our grip on things, and I think it is, if it's true, that ought to have great impact on the way we live our life every single day. And I pray hopefully through the sermon, hopefully through these questions, hopefully through our own reflection on what God has said to us this morning through the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts and minds, that we really dive deep for a moment and think about this in a way that helps us to take God's Word and in a very real, literal way, apply it to our lives in such a way that it impacts those around us, our families, our city, our neighbors, our friends, those we work with, go to school with, whatever it might so as we reflect on what God is doing and speaking to us, uh, we're going to enter into a time of response. We do this every Sunday here at Redemption. Um, the band's going to come up in a second and continue to lead us in some songs. Give us an opportunity to worship through singing. While that happens, um, we also have the opportunity to uh, worship through giving. There's a giving basket in the back where you can give your tithes and offerings uh, as a continued act of worship. Uh, during this time as well, you have the opportunity to sit where you are, sort of reflect on what we've heard, reflect on what God has
has spoken through his word, what the Holy Spirit is saying to us. Uh, maybe pray about it. Maybe grab somebody and pray about it. Um, whatever it might be. Uh, during this time as well, we have the opportunity to take communion. Um, so here at Redemption, we take communion every Sunday as a way to remember what Christ has done for us and to proclaim to one another that we believe it. That's what Scripture says happens when you take communion or, or the purpose of communion is to remember what Christ has done and proclaim our belief in what Christ has done, that the gospel is true. So let me invite you, if you're here and you're a follower of Christ and you want to take communion, God gives you the freedom to do so. I'd invite you to come down this middle aisle, go in either direction, tear off the bread, dip it in the wine or juice, and so remember the truth of what Christ has done and proclaim that we believe it. I'm going to pray for us. And then we'll move on with that. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for this reminder from Acts chapter 4 that, the, that Jesus has done something on our behalf. <coughs> that Jesus has sacrificed for us that we might be right with you. And God, thank you for this reminder that the gospel calls us to live sacrificially, to loosen our grip on things and to hold tight to people. God, I pray that you would make that a reality in our lives. I pray that you would revolutionize the way we live and thus our city, our neighborhoods, our families, our friends, because we take your word seriously and because we allow it to change us. God, I pray that as we continue to worship and take communion and pray and all the other things that are going to happen, God, I pray that Jesus would continue to be lifted high. We would continue to be drawn to you. God, I ask this in the name of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.